Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Justin, welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Thank you very much. Very nice to be on. Great to have you here. We've known each other for a while, so it'd be um, nice to actually ask you a few questions about about your winemaking. But uh, for the benefit of everyone else at home, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and why you're qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about? Well, my name is Justin Howard Sneed. Um, I'm a master of wine. I've been doing all sorts of things in the wine space for for many years, long time as a buyer. But I have, for the last 12 or 14 years, been making wine in the Roussillon region in the south of France, um, called Domain of the Bee, and uh, big, chunky Grenache Carignan blends. I'm not fantastically technical as a white wine producer, but uh, I have reasonably good experience in making this kind of red. I did spend three years back earlier on in my career being a sort of peripatetic cellar rat uh, in South Africa, or um, uh, Hungary, um, Romania, southern France, and a few other places. So um, a fair bit of winemaking experience, and I guess a lot of what you want to ask about is is going to be around that sort of topic. So I hope I can help. Perfect. Well, yeah. So let's. So tell us about your vineyard because they're, they're in Maori sort of way, and you've got some pretty old vines. What? Do, how did you find the vineyard? Um, how do you? You know, what's what have you got planted there? Yeah. So we. I was starting from a point of view of having a full time job as a wine buyer, but always wanting one day to make my own wine somehow, and didn't really know how or or, or, um, or why. In some ways, um, I was an itch I wanted to scratch, and and we happened across a, a possibility of buying a parcel. Um, without really too much commitment and without having to create a business plan. And we were able to have some a partnership with some people who were going to look, look after the, the vineyards and um, keep the grapes until we worked out what we wanted to do, what, what we wanted to do. So that was quite an easy way in. And we said yes to that in 2003 and bought a block in 2004. Um, so we and then bought two more blocks in the following couple of years because we reckoned we needed about four hectares to make a viable project. And... Uh, started making our own wine in 2007 so that was the year we switched from giving all the grapes to Richard and Mark to asking them to make wine for us and paying them for the services so um, it, it sort of started as a slow start and has gradually built into a reasonable little business making about 15,000 bottles nowadays um, about half of which are red from our vineyards and the rest are white and pink and a little bit of the lighter reds from my now winemaking partner, Jean-Marc Lafarge, who's Domaine Lafarge, one of the best estates in the Roussillon. So what kind of rootstocks and clones have you got planted there? I presume for this stuff that's 90 years old, you probably don't know, but what do you replace it with? And what have you got uh, that you do know? So I'm not going to be very helpful at all on rootstocks and clones. I'm afraid this is an area of fantastic old vines. Uh, I've never planted a vine. I know Jean-Marc has planted a little bit, but I haven't been involved in that. Uh, we don't interplant when we've got dying vines because we've got lots of gaps anyway. And um, it's very intensive work if you interplant old vines with young ones. You have to go and treat them separately. And um, it, it frankly isn't worth the bother where we are. Um, we've got such low yields. Um, and you know, planting new, new young vines as you know, 10% of the vineyard would just cause you more problems than it's worth. So we've never planted a vine. All our vines are, well, the oldest um, block is entirely sort of massal selection. So it's a mix of grape varieties, um, Grenache, Carignan, but Grenache uh, Noir, but De Blanc and Gris mixed in with some Carignan Gris and some uh, occasional Morvedre, the occasional Muscat. Uh, it's a real old mix. And we've got another block that's partially mixed and partially uh, fairly much pure 
Grenache, and we have another block that's very old, mostly Carignan, but quite a bit of more Verdun, Macabre, and other things thrown in. So um, we don't really know what clones we've got. Uh, we are all grafted on um, American rootstocks, but we don't know what. So uh, it can't be very helpful, I'm afraid, with, with that kind of question. Uh, this might sound stupid, but so if you're not replanting any of them, how long do you see the vineyard lasting? Well, the oldest is over 100, um, and the others are kind of 65, 70, and 80 plus. Um, the 80 plus is charging ahead with lovely, healthy yields, and we're pretty happy with that. That's the mainstay of our main our main um, wine, and our yields have been going up on that because we've been getting a bit better at farming and, and feeding and, and making sure that the vines are healthy. Uh, the other vineyards, some are terribly old, and one of them is so old and so decrepit that we are thinking about um, pulling it up reasonably soon so that there the will need to be a sort of planting stroke investment decision reasonably soon. Uh, the, the the worst yield I've ever had from that block was 500 litres from about one and a half hectares, which is pretty yeah. appalling. Um, but we normally only get 1,000 or 1,500 litres, so um, it's not really very economic. Um, it does produce our best wine, though, so it's it's hard to take the decision to uh, to rip it out. Right, so I'm going to jump in with an uh, 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 exam question from one of these about two years ago. Old vines have a mystique to them. What are the practical challenges and solutions to maintaining vineyards of old vines? Cool. Well, there's plenty of uh, interesting stuff to think about there. Um, I mean, first of all, it's very worth, if you're trying to research this topic, having a look at the Old Vine Conference, which is set up recently by Sarah Abbott and uh, a few other luminaries, um, to try and pull together more knowledge, more insight, more understanding of what old vines have to offer and trying to protect them, stop them being pulled out and try and explain the virtues and the values of old vines. Um, and the first very practical thing is the vineyard is planted, the row width is decided. The In our situation, we can't drive tractors between the roads because they're just too close together. Um, we actually also had, um, we had a tractor row every nine or 10 rows. Um, what that meant was when you use that tractor row to spray, the rows in the middle didn't really get sprayed properly. Um, so we used to have quite a lot of oidium and occasional mildew in the middle rows because we weren't able to reach them with the sprays. So we took the slightly radical decision to take out that uh, middle row of, of eight or nine, creating rows of, sort of three or four on either side. And that actually vastly improved our vine health and yield because we weren't losing uh, crop in the middle. Um, so it's definitely, you know, you've got to think about the, the land and you can't do much to the land when it's planted. Um, so if you're going to buy an old vineyard or take on an old vineyard, um, you, you know, you can't do any real sort of subsoil work or, or re-landscaping or, you know, the, the vines are the vines and you, you, you know, you, you work with them as they are. Um, obviously with bush vines, you, you don't have a trellising system either. So it's really a question of trying to work out how the pruning has been done and how to continue on with the pruning in a way that's going to keep the health of the vineyard um, happy. Um, it's also worth saying with bush vines, there's very little to worry about with trellising. You're not doing a great deal of canopy management. It's all quite straightforward, um, which is one of the reasons we can afford to do it. And we don't have a huge vineyard team. Um, and it's a relatively straightforward part of the world with not a huge amount of complexity with different diseases that need different treatments. So it's a relatively straightforward, a very low intervention form of farming. Well, that leads on quite nicely to uh, what are your biggest pests and diseases. So, so which are the ones that are the real issues with and what do you spray with and how often? Well, I used to say to people that the only problem we don't have in the Roussillon is frost. Um, unfortunately, this year and um, a couple of years before, frost did come to the Roussillon quite severely in some people's cases. 
um, we didn't get hit. All our vines are on slopes and the, the air just drains off. But um, it's normally the frosts just don't last into the period when the, the buds are, 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 um, are swelling. Uh, but this year there were leaves and 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 baby little bunches and then the frost came and, and wiped a few people's vineyards quite badly um we do have a particular the, probably the worst problem for us is the coulure which is the uh, shatter it's the failure of the, uh, the, the 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 bunch flowers perfectly well but then the flowers don't set properly and that tends to happen on old vine grenache anyway to a high proportion i would say we get somewhere between 30 percent and 80 or 90 percent losses of yield Shit. from uh, coulure and, it, and a typical is 50 60 percent so i'm quite used to that I, i'm delighted when there's only 30 percent loss and rather horrified when it's up to 80 percent but the, the grenache yield goes up and down enormously because of that problem and if it's very windy or really damp uh, during flowering um, that tends to be a lot worse so um, i haven't yet been out to our vineyard this year so I haven't been able to see how well the flowers that were looking quite promising a couple of weeks ago from the photographs I saw, I haven't yet seen for myself how well they've set. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed on that one. Uh, one of the reasons it's very difficult to be organic um, when we're not organic is because um, uh, you get quite a bit of odomise around us. Uh, odomise is the great berry moth. Um, it's a tiny little moth that lays eggs and has little baby caterpillars. It has several generations, and it's normally the fourth or third generation that causes problems, and sometimes the fourth generation. Um, you can use sexual confusion, which helps to minimize the numbers, and it's about minimizing numbers um, if you're trying to be organic. But once it takes off, there's very little you can do. And because we pick reasonably late, uh, we will often have a big problem with little tiny caterpillars munching through our grapes just before harvest if we don't control it. So we do use some praise, some, some praise against that. I, sorry, I don't know the brand names. I'm, I'm not uh, particularly well up on um, exactly the, the, the details of what's being used on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but we do occasionally use uh, non-organic treatments for odomese particularly. And then around us, it's dry generally, uh, very rarely a mildew problem, although last year it was terrible, the mildew. Um, and it just required real attention and real care. And very luckily, the Lafarge team who do look after our grapes are extremely vigilant and um, very on top of things. So we didn't really suffer, but other neighbours did quite badly. And um, and there's also then uh, oidium, um, which is powdery mildew. So mildew, as the French call it, mildew is um, downy mildew, and then oidium is powdery mildew. So both of those exist and, and normally powdery is a problem in the um, uh, Carignan particularly. Uh, that's quite susceptible. So, but you know, the usual sprays against those um, sulfur and copper sulfate, effectively Bordeaux mixture, are pretty effective, and that's the majority of what we use against those. Otherwise, um, bore are a real problem, particularly towards harvest time. Um, big physical threat. Uh, obviously, there's lots of things that can eat your grapes and and occasionally people there's a few deer in the vineyard that damage young shoots and but bore are really a big problem in the area and uh one of the reasons is that the, the farmers who shoot them are declining in number fewer people are joining the shoot and the boar are getting uh, more aggressive and breeding faster uh, someone told me a while back that uh, domestic pigs had bred with boar and that meant that their litter numbers were going up from three or four per sow to 10 or 12 occasionally which gives you a scary explosion in population i don't think that there are many around us that have that that big litters but uh, there's a lot of boar around and they can they can decimate your vineyard very easily
So how do you keep them out? Well, electric fences is the, is the standard way, but you have a you have a um, car battery and a rather feeble electric fence. And quite honestly, if a hungry family of boar wants to break through it, they'll just push through um, and not worry too much about it. You also have to very vigilantly go around checking that wind hasn't blown something over the wires that shorts out the the, the circuit or um, you know causes a branch to fall over it and, and lets the pig step over it. Um, so it's not a great solution. So actually, physical fences are probably the best way. And there are growers in the area with vineyards they want to protect who are now putting quite expensive fences around them just to protect them against boar. Uh, right, so can you take us through your wine? Uh, well, take us through harvesting. So when do you decide to harvest? What ripeness? Uh, is it just purely a sensorial thing? Or do you have a load of expensive kit that you take out? And um, and also, uh, I presume that because all your, all your wines are quite punchy, how do you control ABV? Is that done in the vineyard or is that done in the winery or a bit of both? Well, all really good questions. I think, you know, we are where we are because we love the ripeness, the richness, the full-flavoured um, style of Maury Grenache. It's famous for it. It's obviously originally famous for a fortified wine um, style. But Grenache in Maury re- re- regularly reaches 15, 15 and a half, 16 degrees without any bother at all um, and can go well on into 17 if uh, if you want it or let it. Um, we don't really want to be 17 degrees, but we're perfectly happy being 15 because... In general, we find the wines taste better when the grapes reach 14 15%, 15.5% potential alcohol. Um, and until that point, in the 13s and early 14s, there's just a little bit of greenness. There's just a little bit of a lack of, of that lovely concentrated flavour that marks Maury out. Um, so we tend to let them push on until we think they're ready from a sort of flavour uh, point of view and, and a lignification of tannins and, and, and pips. Um, when we think we're ready, we'll we'll pick, which is usually fairly late and at relatively high alcohol levels. Um, the the Carignan comes in more like 14, 14 and a half, uh, although we've had a few barrels at 15 and a half in the past, which have been absolutely fantastic. Um, so I'm not I'm not scared of high alcohol because it brings the flavours I'm really keen on. I would rather that the wine had those flavours with a degree or two less alcohol. And so we have worked out that one way to reduce alcohol is to do whole bunch. Um, we did a um, experiment with two different barrels of, uh, or two different plots of Grenache, where we took one barrel's worth and destemmed it, and a barrel's worth of exactly the same fruit and whole bunched it. Um, and we did that separately on two different barrels. And the alcohol difference in the whole bunch was about 0.6 to 0.7 lower than in the destemmed. And the reason for that, I think, is a couple of reasons. One is if you add stems, you're bringing with the stems the sap in the stems, the liquid inside the stems, which is not very sugar-rich. So there's a little bit of extra liquid introduced that's not sugar. And then when you take the stems out at the end, if you suck them or bite them, you can taste there's lots of alcohol in them. So you're actually physically removing a bit of the alcohol um, as you remove the stems. So there is a sort of physical effect of lowering the alcohol. Um, And I know there's pH-related effects as well that uh, play around with your potassium and maybe your yeast activity that may have an effect too. But it does seem to be generally true that the whole bunch will lower your alcohol between um, half a degree and a degree. And it also adds a sort of freshness, um, which isn't acidity, but it is sort of phenolic grip that 
renders the wine keeps it keeps it fresh and, and, and drinkable so for us sort of lighter styles of um of grenache particularly we're, we're quite keen on that whole bunch approach and we've been doing it for four years now and really like those those whole bunch barrels they do add uh there's now probably 30 to 40 percent of um of the volume that we're making and it's nice to play with them in the blends of the different wines that we make to try and uh, accentuate that kind of light fresh uh drinkable style even with relatively high alcohols what do you do for fermentation to get through so I've, I've obviously looked on your website and you do a little bit of temperature control in your barrels but mostly it's minimal intervention uh do you have is it all native yeast that you use or do you inoculate and if so with what and take us through the rest of the um your approach to, to wine making okay so um just to sort of describe the winery um we now work in a winery belonging to Jean-Marc Lafarge called Chateau Saint-Roch. Um, it's a very nice mid-sized winery with a classic um, southern uh, kind of winery, concrete tanks as the, as the standard. There's a room that was added on in the, I don't know, 40s, 50s, which has got some open um, fiberglass tanks in it. Um, and actually this year, Jean-Marc is renovating the whole thing and changing that barrel from the... the um, uh, for fermentation area, putting some some new tanks in, but we don't use any of those. Um, we're tiny, and we just use a little corner of it. Um, we have one small stainless steel tank. Um, it's about sixteen thousand liters, one point uh, yeah, sixteen hectoliters, um, in which we will ferment our Carignan, um, and then we actually ferment all of our the rest of the Carignan and all of the Grenache in open top five hundred liter barrels. So we buy two or three a year. We have them delivered without the heads. We open the heads on a number of older barrels. In fact, we now have a battery of older barrels whose heads are permanently open. Then there's no new wood contribution, but they're good fermentation vessels. Um, and so we drop our grapes into the barrels with no intervention, well, either a whole bunch or a bit of destemming. Um, and then what we like to do, if we can, and this is a this is where a lot of winemaking falls short of what you'd ideally like to do for reasons of capacity and um, harvest time just being a manic time where you can't do everything you want. Uh, we have, um, Jean-Marc has rents every year, a cold container, um, literally a, just a refrigerated container, which is um, able to chill a barrel down to about two degrees over two or three days. And that has the capacity for nine barrels in it. Um, and Jean-Marc and I are probably making about 50 or 60 barrels uh, up in the, the barrel uh, fermentation area at San Rock, of which maybe 15, 16 are mine. Um, and at any one time, you can only have nine barrels in the chill, the chill container. So we will put a, a freshly picked barrel in there for as long as we can, hopefully a week, but often only two or three days, chill it right down as cool as it'll get. Um, and then that delays the onset of fermentation and allows a maceration to take place and allows colour and fruit to come out of the grapes uh, before you really get the alcohol level rising to the point where you're extracting too much tannin and, and uh, kind of harsh characteristics from the pips and the skins. So we, we like a pre-fermentation maceration if we can do it, and I'd love to do more. Um, one of the things you know we're thinking about in the longer term, and this is a, about wine business really rather than about winemaking, is you know how can we have total control over those decisions and have more capacity? Ultimately, we'll probably need our own place, but that needs quite a bit of cash and um and a bit more 
a bit more turnover. So I'm trying to increase the sales a bit so that we can reach the point where one day we might be able to justify buying a building and, and equipping it ourselves and being entirely independent. But that that is a few years away yet. And um, it, you know, a lot of winemaking ends up being doing what you can with what you've got available. So yes, just to carry on. So when the wine's been in the barrel for a few days, we forklift it out. We lift it up upstairs with, with a, a newly installed lift that Jean-Marc put in last year, um, wheel it into place and let it warm up. And as some years, our barrels have just taken off spontaneously. And we've just thought, well, there's no point in inoculating them now because they're up and running. Um, but normally we do inoculate because we're dealing with alcohols of 14 and a half, 15, 15 and a half. And at that level, there's a distinct risk of stuck ferments if you just allow the natural uh, yeast population to, to start off. Um, we've only occasionally actually had problems with stuck ferments, but we generally avoid the problems by, by inoculating. Um, do you have a, a favourite yeast or, or do you just pick something out of the Lafour catalogue that says high alcohol carrying in? Well, to be absolutely honest, I, I defer to Jean-Marc and his, uh, his team. He's got a lovely guy called Dominique who um, has a, two or three different yeasts and I will talk a bit about them, but he knows the characteristics and he knows what they do. So um, he will generally say we're using this one this year for the Grenache. And I'm, you know, Jean-Marc is one of the best winemakers in the Roussillon. I'm not a technical uh, expert when it comes to yeasts. We haven't done, you know, we don't have enough volume to do significant trials to say we're going to block this uh, this area of, of, of vines and we're going to turn, you know, we're going to use a particular yeast on that one and a different yeast on, on another to do those trials. I, I've worked a bit with Lalamond and seen the effect of those very disciplined trials. I think it's fascinating, but it's quite hard to learn things like that when you've just got um, 12 to 15 barrels to play with. And so we tend to be fairly happy just to go along with um, with what Jean-Marc's recommending. Fair enough. So, uh, and then after, so after you've, after your ferment's finished, where, when you, what do you add in then? Do you do any kind of findings? Uh, so are you, all your wines vegan? I, I seem to rem remember that, or did I make Yes, no, we, we, we don't add very much at all. In fact, you know, apart from the occasional bit of yeast food, um, we have once or twice acidified a particularly worrying barrel that had a very high pH. But by and large, we don't need to because Mori actually preserves lovely acids even quite late in, in the season. Um, so how does it how does it do that? Is that just from diurnal temperatures, or are you at enough another altitude? How does it keep those freshness, or is it the again the age of the vines? Do you know? Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's very it's very um, easy to sort of spend the whole time thinking that you know every decision is justified by facts and knowledge, and that's rarely true. You, you know, very often you you are you know there are people in the world who will who will know. I think that it's probably quite a lot to do with soil type. Um, and there are certain soils that seem to give better fresher acids than others. Um, it's a bit to do with the ripening profile and, you know, we, we ripen fairly late. We also concentrate at the end of the harvest, which means that you actually lose water from the grapes and part of the ripening is actually just concentration. So that also concentrates acids. That probably is part of it, but also pH is, you know, honestly a bit of a mystery to me. I've, I've worked as a winemaker. Um, I, I know how important pH is in winemaking, but some pHs from some blocks, usually down on the plane, come in at you know three point eight to four, and our blocks usually come in at three point four, three point five, end up three point six after after malolactic. So we're pretty lucky that the blocks we've got, and actually up the upper um, Agley Valley, 
tends to have a um, relatively low phs and nice acids so do, when, in terms of MLF, is that inoculated as well or does that just, is that spontaneous? Um, it's, it's spontaneous and sometimes reluctant and sometimes the reluctant MLF needs an inoculation to get it going. So we had one year, two years ago where we just, nothing really went through properly. Some started and stopped again. So we, you know, the French are very relaxed. And when I was you know, working as a flying winemaker, to applying sort of Kiwi winemaking principles to wineries in Hungary and places like that, um, you know, it was all very technical and you wanted everything to happen exactly as you had planned. And, you know, things didn't entirely happen. And the people in Hungary just shrugged their shoulders and says, don't worry, wait till the spring, it'll warm up and then the malolactic will go then, which wasn't an option for the wines we were making because we were trying to make sort of fast maturing reds that were ripe and ready. So we spent a long time uh, restarting ferment inoculations and trying to warm things up to get the mallow going. Um, but you know, with Domain of the Bee, when we had problems with Mallow, we just adopted the French principle of let's wait and see. Um, most years that that's happened, the barrels have started up again perfectly happily in the spring. And then one year they didn't. And all through the, the, the next summer, they still didn't shift. And um, we ended up bottling a couple of wines with quite significant malic in them and having to filter them, which wasn't what we wanted. But, um, but that's what happened. So you know, you can't control everything. Actually, and those ones turned out really well. So I was really pleased with them. <laughs> Kids. Um, right, so I'm, I'm conscious of time. That there's an exam question which I think leads on to the, the, the something else that you want to talk about. Um, so consider the growth in demand for vegan, organic and sustainable wines. What can and should the wine industry be doing in response? Uh, and I think you've got something as a quite a nice example there for us. Well, yes. I mean, I, apart from making wine, I do lots of other things. I consult in a number of different areas to lots of different people, quite often on the commercial side of wine and um, uh, routes to market and, and branding and that kind of thing. But most recently, what I've been getting interested in is is soil and um, kind of farming techniques and trying to understand how viticulture can be made more sustainable. And if you think about it, vines cover a pretty large proportion of the world's farmland. Now, admittedly, it tends to be the, the, the less um, high-yielding, the, the, the poorer land that tends to, to grow vines. But if, if we could help the world's vine growers to do things in a more sustainable way sequester more carbon um to, to 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 spend less time and energy and money on chemicals that might be depleting the soils and to get more life out of their soils um then i think we'd be doing the world a favor now, so i'm doing some work now with the dartington trust which is based at dartington state in near Tottenham in devon and they have a fantastic history over nearly a century now of um, innovative farming techniques. And the estate was actually bought in the 20s by the Elmhurst, um, a couple called the Elmhurst, not Leonard and Dorothy Elmhurst. And they were really interested in how to improve the lot of uh, subsistence farmers around the world, particularly in India. And they, did, they used their estate as a place to do agricultural research. And... Ever since then, it's, it's changed and grown into a, into a centre for arts and centre for ecology. There's a famous music summer school. Um, there's an art school there. Uh, there was, in fact, a, a, a children's boys' school, a boys school there in the, in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Very innovative, uh, unusual place to go and study with quite unusual uh, philosophies. And, and then Schumacher College was founded there, um, which is the centre for ecology and spirituality. Um, 
And now there's quite a big focus on um, regenerative farming. So there's a lot going on at Dartington. And up till now, it hasn't really included wine. But my, part of my uh, job there over the last year has been to introduce some wine education. So we're doing a bit of consumer education. And we're doing a few wine events and wine evenings. But we're also going to be running this course on uh, regenerative and sustainable viticulture, which bringing in quite a few of the UK's experts in these areas. We're, we're going to be working with a neighbouring vineyard who are called Sandridge Barton, which is actually where Sharpham wines have now moved to. Many of you may know Sharpham, but um, the Sharpham wines are now made across the river uh, at Sandridge Barton. And they are uh, embarking on a sort of sustainable strategy for their viticulture. And we're going to be going and learning how to look at soil in a different way and how to understand how soil really works in a way that I think conventional agriculture, conventional viticulture doesn't really mostly do. And this is things I've been really, really learning in the last year, quite how much soil matters, quite how much the life in the soil, the, the, the microbiome, the bacteria, the fungi that live in the soil and the root networks that um, are sort of symbiotic with the roots of, of plants around them uh, help to feed and nurture the vines. And that if you spend too long treating your vineyards with uh, pesticides, fungicides, and herbicides, you deplete and destroy the life in the soil to the point where it's really a fairly inert medium. And that actually ends up giving you unhealthy vines. Um, so we're sort of on a learning journey, but this course, I think, will be a really fantastic way to start and almost first principles to understand what soil is and how to make, how to improve soil. And a lot of focus at the moment in the world of agriculture is on quite how well you can increase the carbon in soil by um, certain practices. And, and one of the key ones is don't plow. If you plow every time you turn open the, the, the soil, you open it up to the air, to the sun, to the wind, and a lot of the life in the soil gets killed by that process. Um, it, it doesn't seem like a terrible thing to do. And in fact, a lot of organic farming relies upon tilling your rows to keep your weeds down. Um, but no-till agriculture uh, has a much higher chance of, of keeping healthy soils and keeping life in the soil and keeping carbon in the soil. And quite how to do that with vineyards when you're also trying not to apply chemicals is a challenge. And it's not one that's been totally solved yet. But we're definitely exploring that and learning about it and, and teaching about it with the help of quite a few rather interesting people. So if anyone is interested, go onto the Dartington Trust website, have a look at their courses, their week-long course um in viticulture uh is at the end of august and we'd love to have any mw students who think that might be interesting to come and spend a week with us uh getting their hands dirty plunging them into into the soils of devon and uh, learning what they can <laughs> you couldn't have picked a worse week i don't think for stage two students but um... well this is true anyone taking the exam is not going to be doing this anyone who's deferred the exam for a year or two or is a, perhaps a stage one student um may may want to come along well, Dartington's amazing. So I grew up in Plymouth and Dartington Halls. Um, I've seen many, many concerts and gigs there. It's an incredible place. But so, yeah, I mean, it's, if it's still going next year, I think I'll be quite quite up for it. Fantastic. Um, so there's a couple of bits I wanted to ask a little bit more um, on that in terms of sustainability. So uh, in, the, in terms of the different certifications, what kind of data and evidence are there that each one is is or isn't more sustainable than another? Bob, this is so complicated. It's really, um, you know, there's a lot of people who've done a lot of different studies looking at something specific, but it's an, on a specific place with a specific technique with a, t a particular soil type. It's very, very, very hard to extrapolate and generalize. Um, 
I think it's fair to say also that a lot of the sustainability certifications are fairly small steps from conventional farming towards a perfect world where the soil's full of life. Necessarily so, because what most of them seem to be trying to do is to get as many producers on board with the concept of sustainability and not to set too high a bar that puts off large producers who don't feel it's viable. So in New Zealand, for instance, the sustainable programme in New Zealand, I think, has 96, possibly 98% of all vineyards in New Zealand um, meets the requirements uh, of their sustainability certification. But they were very happy to admit, as they launched this programme, that the bar wasn't very high, and they wanted to get everyone into the habit of measuring their carbon footprint of totally understanding how their water waste was managed and and start measuring everything. And what they are aiming to do is to just gradually increase the level of the bar so that it, each producer is required to be you know, to do more each year to become more sustainable. And I think that's a very valid approach. But I think it does mean that the consumer who sees sustainable on a bottle may not um, have a great reassurance that that that, that that's a, a very different wine from a conventional wine. Um, having said that, I think organic isn't necessarily the right approach because in a lot of cases, organic requires very heavy levels of copper and quite a lot of passes of the tractor and a lot of diesel use and soil compaction. And um, Jean-Marc Lafarge, who I work a lot with, he's while he has some vineyards under organic and, and is, is planting more or, or rather more vineyards converting to organic, he has actually decided for all of his production to become HV3, HV3 uh, level um, certified. And that's the highest level of the French certification for sustainability. Um, and that really is a, really more about integrated pest management and uh, minimal use of, of chemicals, um, very controlled and reasoned use of chemicals, what they used to call lutte raisonnée, and also a lot of diversity of habitats and a big focus on keeping hedgerows and keeping areas of bush and wild species and bat boxes and bird boxes and that kind of approach. So there isn't really, there isn't a straightforward panacea that says you should do this, biodynamic is best. Um, I think that actually some of the best approaches are very science focused, uh, following good understanding of what happens on your own farm, not on someone else's farm in a totally different place. Um, that involves really understanding the health of your soil, and you know it's a complex topic. There isn't, there isn't, a, you know, in an essay format. I think you just have to find good people who do good things and, and tell people what they do, um, rather than trying to say this is, you know, broadly true for everybody because it does make an enormous difference where you are and you know what type of land you've got. What we're doing, putting a big, big focus on with Dartington, is doing the right analyses, measuring the right things, so that you can, first of all, see the difference when you change your farming practice. You can The measurements will change in whether it's um, soil carbon or um, uh, earthworm count or a kind of physical test of how the, how the, the earth holds together when you, you, when you put it in water. There's lots of things you can do, but... I think the thing to do is, you know, make some decisions and then measure measure the measurements and see what changes you can effect. Cool. Do you think the world's heading in that way in general? Are, are you seeing a change towards more sustainability, or is this a push in the UK to try and get people in that direction? Well, I think it is probably mostly what I'm seeing is that people who work in businesses 
suddenly come to the conviction that they've got to do something because you know there is a climate crisis there's no doubt about that and yeah you know, i think it's incumbent on everyone to do what they personally can to contribute and yes we all personally recycle and maybe buy electric cars and turn the lights off when we're not using them and that kind of thing but you know all of those small effects will add up but when you're actually working in a, a business sector that's contributing negatively to the, the, the problem i think it's important that we show some leadership and try and do something about it so i think actually it's not coming from consumers because if you ask consumers what sustainable means they don't tend to know and they don't tend to look for those labels there was a good bit of research from one intelligence recently that said that the word sustainable doesn't have much sway organic does because it's been around for ages and people know what it means but sustainable doesn't really i think the push is coming from industry leaders like like miguel torres who are recognizing the issues and responsible business owners who want ultimately sustainability is about can you be doing the same thing you're doing now in 100 years time and that's partly environmental but it's also partly financial and i think people are seeing that that's the way things are headed and are moving that doing what they can to move in the same direction cool well i'm i'm conscious of of time a little bit um so just one final question to end on uh which i always like to ask people at the end uh, what do you think are the real causes for optimism in the world of wine today gosh <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm generally a very optimistic person, so I am delighted by the explosion of interest in wine among people who are now at home drinking at home and buying interesting wine from interesting people. Um, most of the small indies that I know are doing really well at the moment. Lots of the internet sellers are doing fantastically well. There seems to be a great deal of interest. There's a lot of people doing Zoom wine tastings and reading about stuff and uh, you know, there's a, a real resurgence of interest i think we're also as an industry getting better at telling stories about wine and making wine sound interesting because it can be very boring and, and you know sorry to say we're a bunch of people studying towards the mw exam that kind of level of questioning and geekery isn't really interesting to most people that people want to know about you know the awful disaster that meant you you know nearly lost your crop they want to hear the human stories uh, around wine and i think we're gradually learning that that's what sort of excites people so i think connecting people who love wine or who are starting their wine journey to places where wine is made to interesting people getting them out into the vineyards getting them to visit uh stunning wine regions and meet the people who make the wine i think is part of a process that, that brings people closer to sort of premium wine production and, and more prone to spend a bit more money on a bottle of wine and I think there's loads of scope for that to continue and improve in the future and spread the, you know, the love away from Bordeaux and Burgundy, which have had it for most of the, most of the last couple of centuries towards amazing other regions that, you know, now people are getting very excited about and new regions that we're going to get excited about. So, you know, it's really exciting to see a Sirtico from Santorini fetching high prices because it's in demand because 10 years, 15 years ago, people started saying, this is incredible. And, getting it under wine lists. So these things can happen pretty quickly now and there's a lot of really great communication happening about wine, which I think helps people connect to exciting wines from around the world. Where do you think the new um, exciting regions are going to be, apart from Murray, obviously? Well, uh, you know, the world of wine has changed so much and there are so many places making amazing wine. I mean, Canada, pretty exciting stuff there. Um, we're definitely going to be a load more interested in China in the future. Um there's so many people 
spending lots of money and lots of time and energy thinking about Chinese wine. I've been there two or three times, had a visit to a few of the wine areas. And, and you know, it, 10, 15 years ago, some pretty shocking wine. Um, I'm still not sure that much of China has the, the perfect terroir, but by God, they're making a go of what they've got. And you know, they'll work out a way to make it good. And, and some of them are making it very, very well. So I think there's a load more to come from strange places that we haven't associated with wine before that turn out to make pretty amazing wine. And where the winemakers adapt the grapes and the winemaking styles to suit the area they're, they're working in. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I think there's loads of places in the world that, that's, you know, turns out now in the States, is it, is it uh, 50? How many states are there, Bob, in, in America? Is it 50 states? I think it's 50, yeah. It's, it's all of them apart from Alaska, isn't it? I think 49 states grow, have, have wine production and Alaska doesn't. So, you know, vines are growing everywhere. And someone even told me they're planting a vineyard in Scotland the other day. So um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the English wine scene. I think that's really exciting. And some of the still wines being made here are, are, are going to be really exciting. Um, so that's something to watch for sure. Well, listen, I'm, I know you said uh, you had until about seven-ish, so um, I'll let you get on with your evening. But thank you so much for that. That was That was brilliant. Well, really, really great pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for listening. And um, well, I've enjoyed listening to the podcast and um, I hope some people get some value out of this. And anyone who's taking the exam this year, then really good luck to you. Um, it's uh, quite an experience. Just uh, look after yourself before you before the week of the exam and eat and drink well and sleep properly and you should be fine. <laughs> That's all there is to it, is it? <laughs> well, there's a bit more to it than that, but it's definitely really good. Don't, don't, you know, panic and study late into the night in the week before the exam. Look after yourself. Be in a good physical shape, uh, and you'll be a much better place to survive the rigors of God. What is it now? Five essay papers and three tasting papers in a week. It's, it's a, it's, it's a, t- a tough marathon. So good luck to you all. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to it, but I'm sure, it, uh, sure it'll all be fine. Um... Yeah, thank you so much for that. That was uh, that was wonderful. Pleasure.